there are some differences like in terms of income, in terms of education, in terms of age. The poor, lower educated people who are about to die elected for a very long-term decision. Hello everyone and welcome back to this, the Marginal Babble podcast. I'm very happy that you've taken the time to join us again today. In today's episode, I sit down and talk to Dr. Mikhail Freer out of the University of Essex to discuss utility economics and how it permeates all aspects of society. The links to all reference research are included down in the description below. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. research is pretty much at least from the stuff I was able to read because it's very dense but I'm not I think I would have struggled to read it even when I was actually at um, when I was actually studying economics was it three years ago but I think even now I'm having a bit of a hard time with it um, but yeah it's all micro stuff in, and specifically utility right and so yeah. it's so, so is there a particular reason for that in terms of like do you prefer the micro over the micro? I just uh, look I uh, it's actually funny because I started dealing with very macro models okay. I started from the I'm a mathematician by education so that makes a lot of sense I'm going to say actually yeah no I started with dynamic systems okay I was uh, studying the ethnic hate and uh, all this stuff but then I went to the to work for short term in the University in Israel in Weizmann Institute of Science. Okay. And there I met this exceptional guy, Karkanai, who is like super, who was already super old. But he was old, so then I was thinking about PhD. He explicitly told me that, you know, he's afraid to take me as a student. Oh, right, because he's just yeah. Because it's like he says, I don't know whether I will survive until your graduation. <laughs> it's a bit morbid, isn't it? It's <laughs> a bit that, but uh, you know, once you turn some age, you should be realistic. <laughs> yeah, that's true, I suppose. Why the, why the change then from sort of mathematical to, well, I mean, not that you work as a math guy, but why, why the change from macro to micro? Uh, basically, we started working with him on uh, some real preference stuff, and it was uh, very interesting. So, we started with this, I realized that basically it's much more beautiful. So he was working a lot on the notions of complementarity and substitutability. Right. And then the mathematics behind is exceptionally beautiful. Oh, okay. So it's like there are these uh, structures which are popular in data science, the lattices. Uh, basically, then for two, every two elements, you would have a maximum or a minimum, right, okay. which is like very important for search and whatever you want to do. But now imagine you have like a continuous space, and then you need to show that there is a particular lattice structure in the continuous space. Yeah, in fairness, I wish I could understand half of that, but I think I at least a little bit. Although no, but that's uh, that's just uh, it's sort of it's a, it's a tool from discrete world. Yeah, from very discrete world. So it's like it's a data science world. Yeah, there you have a finite number of observations and everything, and your goal is to map it back to the utility and demand, yeah. which is infinitely dimensional space. Yeah. So you you work uh, from from like hundred observations to the space of all potential functions. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. Is amazing. So yeah. Well, I was gonna say I was always more interested in the micro stuff. Like, uh, I think behavioral economics always like, sort of really took my fancy. And that, as opposed to the macro stuff, not that the macro stuff wasn't interesting, obviously it is, but I think it's, it's 
Although it's just more content. I think Michael is just more personable. Like mm-hmm. more of a, I think so. But obviously, so the overview of this is just that sort of talk about utility. Yeah. And it's role in economics and, you know, all sorts, really. And obviously, a lot of your research is utility and the preferences and all sorts. Um, so, I mean, like I said, from going over your, your research, it's very, very sort of dense. Is utility, is it a lot of utility maximization models and things like that very, very mathematical? Is that common within the rest of the research or is it? So, look, basically, I don't know you can find an economic paper which doesn't have like or an economic paper after 70s which doesn't assume that a person maximizes some sort of utility yeah so it might be a very complex you know in behavioral you would still have utility maximization but then they would relax a lot of assumptions so it would be it would be something strange so the true thing is that the revolution has happened uh, in the in the twenties and thirties. So, the utility as a philosophical concept, yeah, it, it existed a while. Sure. But then economists were like, you know, it's it's a philosophical concept. So yeah, well, it's John Stuart Mill, I think, who sort of credited a lot with the the utility economic stuff was primary, I think, philosophy. Yeah, exactly. So, but then the point is that. In the beginning of the 20th century, it was a bit more of like, okay, we, we sort of figured out the philosophy. And now, well, you know, these people ask us for policy. Sure. Because that's, that, that's the interesting side of utility as sort of concepts in economics. Because there's this sort of idea that how much, sort of, well, how much benefit are you actually gaining from one unit of anything, right? Exactly. And this, the, I think the whole idea of like budget constraints and things like that is, is the whole idea is just because you are potentially nominally richer doesn't necessarily mean that you're actually... Any you, better off. Yeah, any better off, exactly. So you could be on, you know, I guess to put it in sort of layman's terms, you could have less money, but if you're in an environment where you can only buy a set, a couple of goods, whereas if you have slightly less resources, but you're able to buy a lot more types of resources and to fulfill your needs a lot better then obviously that's a lot better maximized um use of utility i guess when did it so it started off so obviously like i said the concept of utility mm-hmm. was along before john stewart mill but he obviously had a sort of very sort of large role in sort of bringing it to economics at least you say it's sort of become it's been into actually integrated with economic models and sort of mathematics is since what 60s 70s so Okay, the utility, so for instance, there is a works of Valras, which are mid-19th century. He was yeah. working on exchange markets, and he used the concept of utility. Yeah. So it was there basically for a while, but in the 30s, they, because that's exactly the interpretation of like, okay, we're measuring how much more better off you are, which is somewhat obnoxious measure. For, for if, you, if you think scientifically, it's like, okay, I can measure your satisfaction with consumption in some units, and these units are comparable among people. Yeah. So it is a bit an obnoxious measure. And then in 30s, they link the concept of the utility to the concept of preferences. So the whole idea is that they said, okay, I have the notion of preferences, meaning I just need to order the goods. Right. Um, so um, partly, you just obviously you know we chat about sort of the difference between sort of welfare related utility and uh, sort of decision making utility, uh-huh. and I think sort of preferences obviously 
ties into that. What what is the difference between decision making utility and some welfare related? So utility? that actually came a bit later, right? Because that comes with uh, behavioral models, right? So there are behavioral models which assume that, for instance, irrelevant. So there is an option of relevant alternatives or the context affecting your choice. So assume I don't know you see you see a good, and then you see a good which is much more worse than that. But this worse good primes you to buy the good you've seen originally. Okay. So in the modeling setting, it works as if you it increased your utility. So seeing this dominated alternative. But then it did increase your utility. It did affect your preferences. But did it affect your preferences in terms of the welfare or just affected your preferences for the decision making? Okay, so, so the idea is that uh, it's like it's like the nudging, right? Then you nudge a person to make a particular decision. Does the nudge fundamentally enter the welfare? Well, for that's a question, isn't it? Because if it does, it's uh, you have to the people like uh, yeah, a nudge being you know. Uh, a, a guiding force implemented by something in order Some to... Regular. So, for instance, uh, uh, there are a lot of people in Chicago dealing with that, and what they have usually is some sort of social comparison. Yeah, they try to improve uh, the energy-related behavior of that. Right. So, they show you how you are on energy efficiency relative to your neighbors. Oh yeah, I think I was reading something about that. Yeah, yeah, there are a bunch of papers I think, along I think I think I even like did something on on I think it was about HET, something like home examination like leaflets or something where literally they would post through the, yeah. um somebody like each individual store in the household just mm-hmm. like your usage is this in comparison to these True. people. And it had like it, they were it was interesting to show that, you know, they were much more conscious over it. I think the one I read was they were more conscious over it because they almost felt like a level of almost like competition because yeah. of, you know because it's one thing I guess so to say let's let's say you were trying to get everyone in your country to save on energy right just telling everyone all oh, that our nations like with this is this in a macro sense that might be very sort of useful and it might explain a lot but on an individual level you know they're almost though those things are too big but when you're doing something like that and you relate it to your immediate peers it becomes immediately more tangible for an individual and, and there's like almost like a level of competition because you know that, that you have a I'm trying to think of the word like stake in it almost because you know that the individuals that you're playing against or like with and so it, it showed they was able to have sort of a much more dominant impact I think on that but that's you know that's a prime example of micro exactly yeah yeah so that's a typical example of when uh, you have this context which they give you because like if you think about yourself like why my behavior should be affected by behavior of these people Hmm. Like, Sh- shouldn't really like yeah, yeah if you're taking sort of you know the general sort of axioms of excellence that, but that's what behavioral economics does exactly. really. it takes those standard preferences well standard axioms assumptions that we have in economics like monotonicity convexity you know and it basically sort of, and it shows that in, in many situations they don't sort of actually sort of stand up in reality I had literally an, an episode before this we were chatting with um Dr. Caprara, and he was talking about behavioral economics. We were talking about sort of loss aversion. We were talking about sort of the Iyengar and Nepa stuff, you know, with like the jam study. I think that's the, like, the very famous one, right? And sort of mm-hmm. in terms of choice, and you have like loss aversion and things as well of that, where, you know, just on the micro level, 
people's actual individual decision making doesn't necessarily manifest it in those standard economic assumptions uh, this might be like almost like a, again a quite an obnoxious question but like particularly when you look at sort of macro modeling and when people with government pol- governments and policy makers are trying to sort of implement these policies on a macro level whether it be interest rates monetary policy all these different kind of things is there a way to like appropriately sort of actually assess like how people are going to act on the micro level and and how they're actually going to be able to actually implement because you can make those sweeping changes but people's individual decision making there could be a hundred different factors that could affect it so yes but uh, the the point is that they need to approximate it somehow and then if you think about the macro models which deal with like inflation targeting or whatever they're also called the general equilibrium models. Yeah. So they assume that every household maximizes not not only their utility, they usually also look uh, at the intertemporal utility. Right, so over time. So okay. yeah, it's uh, like they're maximizing their utility over the entire consumption stream. Right, okay. So I so guess it that should be incorporated in sure. every model. Yeah, so that's the, you know, that's the idea of sort of taking, instead of it being like a one-shot game, sort of it, it's yeah, a game for, model. for macro, it's important to look at the intertemporal aspect. Yeah. Because, you know, they change interest rate, and uh, if you just think about today, what your reaction shouldn't be there at all, yeah? You just... Sure. The whole, the whole business is what will your pension be in 30 years from now? Yeah. And that's why they have this uh, reasonable but uh, still insufficient assumption. I know. And to ask you, we go down like, the, the rabbit hole of economics and their assumptions, right? I think it's almost like an underpinning floor of like, the whole field in some regards. But um, to that point, then, which we, we talked about behavioral economics there, and that, you know, that people don't necessarily in reality act in the ways of like those typical economic assumptions of more is better than less you know convexity and things like that how are people generally good at maximizing their own utility uh okay i would say it depends what do you mean by utility right okay and um, yeah so basically if you just think about plain utility so a riskless context just picking the goods people are okay yeah, so not bad. <laughs> of, no, of course you can all like the pro, the point the bit of the problem with behavioral is that it kind of started with some seminal results and you know people disproving their own theories, but then it moved uh, a lot uh, to to the direction there. You just run an experiment, you find a particular violation, and you exploit it, and then like okay, but then how frequently you see this type of manipulation in the market so for instance these uh, nudging things and other reference dependent uh, choices yeah like you can implement them but then if you come to a supermarket well I mean they would rarely use that on a systematic basis sure but I mean supermarkets as a whole of it because this is one of the things we chatted about in that episode was that if people don't think that behavioral economics because it's a relatively new, relatively new field. You know, I'd say relatively new. It's still like fifty yeah. years old, right? But like when you compare it to like you know economics as a you know, subject going back many many years, um, because it's like a relatively new field, people tend to. But I think when I'm chatting to 
that aren't necessarily in economics and stuff that don't necessarily know precisely what it is. Well, because they'll know what like monetary policy, potentially quantitative easing, all that, the macro stuff, but they don't necessarily know that. And a lot of the thing, what people often say to me is, well, how does it actually affect me? Well, like, it's being implemented everywhere. Like you go into a supermarket, there's a reason why they stick the bread and the eggs on the back of the store and make you walk past every other single option to basically, to, to, you know, so it's definitely being implemented. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, but I would say that still uh, not. Uh, first of all, uh, again, not uh, at the you know not not universal level because supermarket usually doesn't have an incentive to sell you a particular alternative. Okay. So they would like to actually widen your scope of alternatives, so of a certain quality, but uh, so they get the highest probability that different types of consumers would purchase it. True, but then isn't there, I mean, this is the goes back to the, the, the argument in that part study, right? Like the idea that if you have more options to choose from, the more likely it is that you're more likely to find a product that better suits your needs, that, and then you're more likely to purchase. But obviously in that study, exactly. it showed that actually the more options you give someone, the less likely they were to buy. Uh, but yes, and it's also like they, they use a lot of tricks, like the different shelves and everything. Sure. Yeah, so they they don't have the infinite uh, number of products to avoid the overload. Sure, I, I would say though, I think genuinely, at least my view on this is that I think for the most part, people are pretty good at maximizing their own utility. For the most part, in terms of that, you know, people tend to know what they want, they tend to know that, you know. It, more money or like you know how much time they want to work and they're pretty good at working out their own budget yeah. constraints people that want to work you know a million hours a week and earn a lot of money some will and people that don't want to do that and you know have more leisure. i mean that's the typical budget constraint right leisure time yeah you know. exactly so important distinction here is that also like are people good at maximizing utility so then you have sort of a behavioral level analysis then you have a general micro level of analysis and a macro level of analysis. Right, yeah. So the behavioral level is like, I look at every decision you got. Yeah, right down to sort of the money. And then I yeah. pick every deviation, you know, because that's my bread and butter. In a micro level, like I work some with household data and then like, it's good if with the very fancy survey, like which is a, a scanner survey where people actually scan what they buy at the supermarket. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that you aggregate the data at a weekly level or two weeks level. Yeah. So it's some level of aggregation, and then you can see that maybe you know they sure. make mistake here and there. Sure, because for but, yeah. Uh, yeah, overall they cancel out. Because someone could be walking through a supermarket and for whatever reason they're like, oh, I buy this today because like they're in a particular headspace. But if you looked at them over the course of the year, they would maximize, you know, they made better decisions. Over the no, there are, for instance, a lot of like, uh, and UK has done some work against the aspiration purchases. Okay. So then you purchase some healthy food, like high sugar soda, right? Yeah. out of aspiration. And one of the consumers who is uh, loving this type of aspiration, high sugar purchases. But here we have the tax, here we have the limitation on the vending machines. Etc. Etc. So, sure. uh, well, that's a... and that would be a typical violation, right? Because you go to a vending machine and you buy like uh, uh, thirty centiliters of coke for enormous amount of money, versus you know you could go to Tesco and buy two liters for the same amount. Never understood that. Why, like when I go to like a corner shop, like there's a 
and buy the drink for like a pound fifty. But then like you go literally around the corner, it's like a two litre version exactly. for a pound. It makes absolutely no sense. So to but me people still still but do. people do that. But yeah, yeah. But, but then then you aggregate it over time over a week. See my my think because this is just this is. I don't know how far relevant this is, but this is just me walking around the world, sort of thinking about sort of economics and utility. My th- my th- my thought process always was that buying the smaller bowl it was better for the per- maximizing the individual's utility because they just wanted to drink something and didn't want to have to carry it around with them all day. So there was the negative externality with buying a larger. Uh, there are Man. a lot of so some do it out of self control, others just don't know that you can walk around or don't think. <laughs> so it's lack of information. It's so. lack of information, yes. Mm-hmm. And then uh, yeah, there are a lot of uh, a lot of reasons. And then again, people place vending machines not randomly, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah so but, they make sure that this vending machine will coming out of lecture halls. Yeah. And, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then you must uh, must need it. Yeah. yeah. Bit of control, I suppose. So households do and maximise it relatively well. They just sort of down to some sort of some discriminant stuff. And yeah, of course. Then you think about that. You need to like. That's what we're sort of doing. Is that in a lot of these papers, I do look at the more robust models. Right. So because you need to encompass the fact that yeah, with some likelihood, people would make a mistake. Yeah. And like. You know, unless you you always have uh, some sophisticated nonlinear optimization on your smartphone, and your smartphone tells you, okay, I need to go and <laughs> right now I need to go and buy uh, six hundred grams of chicken thighs. Well, I'm, well, I don't know if they do that, but you know, there's certainly apps out there will beep and tell you to go to go for a walk or something because you haven't been sat down. Or yeah, so yeah. there's not that's that's not exactly very far off in terms of imagination. yeah. But unless uh, unless you use it not enough for the consumption purchase, you might just forget. Uh, you know, you might uh, you know some exogenous shock. So, for instance, you got late at work and then you know you have to eat out because the groceries are closed. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So, and then, obviously, we have to account for that and analyze it. But then, on one hand, it's a magic of aggregation. Yeah. That these mistakes should be neglect, like, relatively negligible to, uh, to the total uh, decisions. So, the model study here, I believe, is the one... Uh, it is still a lab, like, sort of lab in the field study that... Cho and Colthers did in Netherlands. So they invited a lot of Dutch people, over a thousand, and gave them a simple consumption tasks. I was actually going to ask you about this because because um, this is the revealed differences. Exactly. Uh, in revealed differences, we use the data. Yeah, it's the data from who is more rational. Yeah. And then what they find, so they use this measure of uh, errors no. in a sense of like, you have your budget constraints, so you have a total amount of money. Right. What is the, basically, what is the minimal uh, loss in your wage I need to take from you to rational, like to make your behavior look consistent with utility. Okay. And on average, it's below 2% of, of the income people got in the experiment. And that's like about, uh, you know, uh, yeah, so that's, that's a negligible amount, essentially. Right, and then you can see that you make mistakes, but these mistakes are less than, you know, less than five percent of your, whatever weekly or monthly income. Right. So and then they did a lot of fun stuff. So because it's it's a representative panel of Dutch population. 
So it's like... Yeah, it's much better than a lot, a lot of studies that choose university students or something. Yeah. yeah, so and then they show like, look, there are some uh, expected differences like in terms of income, in terms of education, in terms of age, etc. So, and that's just an exceptional, an exceptional descriptive study, I would say. And if you want to ask like whether people maximize the utility, then for the positive answer, their study is the best reference. That's good. And I, I noticed in the revealed preferences article you had, you said that the it's about 1,822 individuals could be divided into 131 different preferences. Okay, what we do there is a bit different. Right, because so. I, I know this is a slightly different, but I was just sort of quite curious and so I sort of had to, how can you sort of divide, what was the process in being able to divide? Okay, that's, uh, that's a very funny idea because, so the idea is that uh, it's, it's a big problem of how to, how to define how many preference types there are. Yeah. Right? It's important because it would be a different reply to a different policy change. What we try to do, we try to get a methodology which is simple. So you maximize your utility, I maximize my utility. But uh, unless our preferences are perfectly aligned, if you merge our data, then together we would look, so each of us looks rational individually, right. but our merged data should look irrational. Right, okay. Yeah. So, and then from that, it's just a matter of mathematics because you do all this pairwise comparison and you basically obtain uh, a nice structure which shows which pairs are different and which are not. Right, okay. And this links to a famous mathematical problem. Then find the number of times is just the types is the famous mathematical problem of graph coloring. Graph coloring, sorry. Yeah, so it's... You have because this structure basically you can you can you can use it as a graph. So I'm linked. Uh, I, there is a uh, each person is a vertex, is a node, yeah. and then there is an edge between the nodes. If the if together we're inconsistent. So and then think about the same thing with countries and borders, and you need to color a map. Okay. But you have to have adjacent vertexes, adjacent countries to be colored in a different. Colors, yeah, right. Yeah. Because otherwise, map would be unreadable. Yeah. Here, it's the same. Uh, okay. And then you just find the minimal number of colors to use. Oh, I see. Briefly, set sort of second ago, we were talking sugar tax, which is mm -hmm. sort of a, a prime example of like a sort of a macro level policy decision maker. Right, we're gonna. Well, I think realistically, that's done for like sort of two reasons. Really, one, it's sort of it's ta it's you're taxing something to de-incentivize behavior, but on the second hand, you're also taxing it to generate income, and that's quite a a very common, you know, that's a very sort of, you know, of, um, economic policy is to tax things you don't, you don't want to discourage and to untax, yeah. untax or alleviate tax and start with behaviors you want to encourage. Do you think that what, do those efforts for the most part, and this might may completely vary depending on what type of policy is being implemented, do those policies for the most part do they allow individuals to help maximize their utility more or do potentially do they disrupt potential their decision-making process and their ability to maximize? Okay, so uh, I can talk a lot about sugar taxes because <laughs> right. um, a lot of my colleagues and co-authors, they're involved with IFS 
and Rachel Griffith, who were directly involved in these reforms in the UK. Oh, right, okay. So, but then the point is that uh, I'm not sure. So, they, these sugar taxes, if you just think about my utility today, my myopic utility as an individual, uh, they would hurt you. Yeah. Because you can't get your favorite drink yeah. or your favorite cake. It gets more expensive. Sure. But then, if you start thinking about your utility over time, it might benefit you because it might push you to the healthier, uh, to the healthier uh, lifestyle. Give yeah. you a nudge over. Yeah. Exactly. And if you think from the perspective of the society, that's uh, it's a much it's a much better one. So it was, uh, you know, from some people of I in IFS, I remember the talk, and it was. Uh, comparison of uh, sugar over consumption related obesity as being uh, worse than smoking. So, so, su- the, so sugar, so sort of refined sugars is <laughs> higher linked to obesity. It, it was, it was a very cynical reason. Smokers, oh. they die young. Ah, right. You know, they, they scare you with cancer and everything, but most likely if you smoke a lot, you would die 60 from a heart attack. Right. You would not survive until the cancer. Right, yeah. So, obese people, they live long. They okay, interesting. Long because nice. we have a lot of infrastructure. To help people with... With obesity, to, you know, if it's diabetes, you, you get your insulin shots, sure, yeah. uh, and you can basically maintain the quality of life. So, is the medicine just more, which is more effective at tackling exactly. obesity than it is actually in terms of the effects of smoking then? Yeah, and this, this effectiveness of medicine sort of makes for the in terms of the make, makes it worse in terms of the costs for the society right sure well i mean that well there's all that whole cynical view of like you know you know if you are if you sit in the ministry of finance or something yeah you say okay i need to increase the spending of uh, nhs because people just consume a lot of sugar and then you think about that well, i mean with, People will have to pay more taxes in order to cope with that. In, yeah. in order to cover for that. So why don't we just make people pay these taxes a bit less, but before to make sure they don't consume that amount of sugar? Yeah, I mean this is sort of I guess runs along the parallel. I wonder for you know the, the amount of A and E trips that I think it was some last study I read it was something sort of like fifty one to fifty four percent why the alcohol related in terms of that. I mean, that's a prime example, right? If yeah. people just didn't... That in, in a hypothetical, lovely, idealistic <laughs> world, right, where nobody ever drank alcohol, um, you would have a situation where, one, you'd have people sort of dying less often, which, you know, is it's longer, good. which is good, right? Work later. Um, and, sort of, and then they're also reducing sort of the, the amount that you could save just from the NHS stuff, that, yeah, that could then, which could then maybe be reallocated into something so, sort yeah. of more. No, but that's exactly why uh, there is the entire class of syntaxes, yeah? which is exactly about the hurting your utility maximization, but making sure that we try to reduce the load on a lot of syntaxes. And yeah. some people like put sugar to the class of the syntaxes. Yeah. is about reducing the load to the public health care. Sure. So we'll keep with the sugar tax because of where, where the knowledge base is in terms of the syntax is. But is there, I mean, that, that's relatively recent. When did that, 
It was it's, several. I think it was less than ten years ago. Yeah, it wasn't. I, re- I remember coming in with yeah. at least my ad, ad sort of rel- it rel- was, relatively. Uh, it, it's quite time. a recent thing. So, has there been any evidence? Because there's been a little bit of time now to show whether that has like positively affected. So I think that it did. Po- okay, I don't think that the evidence was enough to study the obesity. Right. But then it did affect the sugar consumption. It indeed went down. But then in terms of obesity, the problem with it came as a package of measures. So for instance, they prohibited, they restricted significantly advertising of junk food. Right. And uh, stuff like that. So... It's hard to isolate that as a measure. That's why just isolating the tax. I think that I've seen a paper from uh, one of the researchers who is now in, in Switzerland. I'm not sure whether Lausanne or Zurich. And he was studying the same tax in Denmark, where it was isolated. Oh, so they yes. just they just, they just did, did the sugar tax, and there it had a good effect. Cool. Was it like of a of a great magnitude? I mean, it's one of those things where it's probably hard to isolate, I imagine. But it's did it have a great? Was it a small the magnitude? Problem here is that you cannot really. Uh, so here is a trade-off. Yeah, <laughs> you can introduce. An efficient it's, it's like with lockdown the, the medical professional will tell you just you know keep them in their apartments yep. preferably forever yes <laughs> but then the business would say okay and yeah, yeah. hold pay for this sure and the right. same with the sugar yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a ma- sugar is also about bakeries restaurants sure. pubs everything because it right so the other side of the sin taxes thing if you go around sort of hev- heavily let's say taxing like ridiculously let's say 100 200 percent or whatever you know suddenly you know that no <laughs> you know has has a diminishing returns i guess yeah. in terms of the scale. and it just simply hurts the economy like the, the costs yeah. to the economy are higher than the benefits because what you gain in the healthcare benefit you, you lose in the economic growth is there, have there really been any studies, for example, to calculate, for example, I mean, will we use the sugar tax or, to identify an optimal tax? That's level how they for... set it up. So the IFS did a lot of research into estimating a super complicated models yeah. to actually set up the optimal tax. Okay. And then they, they tried to explain that, yeah, this is, uh, this is like the public, uh, you know, public health optimal tax. This is... Uh, the cost to the economy, and here is some sort of balance. But then the point is that, as always with economics, you don't have like a unique optimum. Yeah, you have you give uh, the policymaker you say, okay, which combination of economic growth and public health you want? Yeah, they can ask you like for the cost benefit, but then again with the COVID policy, we've seen with the different countries' reaction. Sure, right? because like you know, if you ask a medical professional, you'd stay isolated. No one would touch anyone ever, and exactly. you know, no, no one would get ill. And we just sort of like, but then obviously that's just not. No, and then you give to the policymaker a set of options, and they pick. What they pick? Yeah. What's their rationale? Probably re-elections, but. <laughs> oh well, that's, that's all that topic itself. But you, you see this a lot in sort of other, other fields. Well, I mean, environmental economics. There's a lot of talk about this. Oh god, I think it. I'm trying to remember it. Environmental cousinets curve. The idea of you know how much, how much effort or should you actually put into let's say reducing CO two emissions? Because for example, right when you start off doing it, oh yeah, you you get a good return on it. Let's say you had like one unit of effort money going into that, you get multiple units back of 
saving on the yeah. O2. But when you're getting into those sort of reducing it down to minutiae, you're just you're just you know you're spending so much money, you're just not doing anything else. Exactly. So yeah, that's a normal thing. But then also, the point is that uh, again here you meet another sort of philosophical idea. Yeah. Because to which extent the state should be paternalistic to the consumers? Oh, so that what to what extent should sort of should guess. because then you introduce a sugar tax or a CO tax. It is sort of uh, at some point you are overstepping the bounds because you are imposing the preferences yeah. and the utilities. Yeah. Well. Yeah? yeah. So it's like who. So, for example, in the sugar tax scenario, though, evidently a lot of work's gone into sort of calculating the sort of, and for specific reasons why we've got these, you know, which I think most people would say are, you know, a good thing, right? Let's reduce yeah. the burden on the NHS. Sugar, at least refined sugar, is not particularly great for you, right? Yeah. You know? But if you take it into other things, you know, like what, sh- you know, who really decides, like, what should, I, what should be sin tax? Well, what is a sin, right? What is the sin, right? Could it be turned around that, you know, if you don't work, if you don't work at all, or you don't work as many hours, something should you be taxed because you're not, you know, there's, you know, you could take that on the very sort of philosophical exactly. route. So how no, much... the good thing that at least in the developed world, there is a good definition of the, the sin taxes, they're called the sin, but usually they're basically taxes which come with the public health costs. Yeah. So they should be like called actually the health taxes. With the health taxes. Yeah. Someone really liked the drama. And call them the sin taxes. And you know, since then... Uh, it's a flashy headline. It's 50s, US, you know, whatever is not good for the society is pro- Protestant uh, yeah, yeah. ethics, or whatever is not good to the society is a sin. <laughs> yeah, but I, I suppose you could extrapolate that into other areas, right? So particularly in sort of other areas, maybe that are more cultural, you know, matters that that sort of economic related that are more cultural that you see as sort of good or bad and sin right depending on who you talk to right you you talk to someone in california their idea of a sin is going to be i would imagine wildly different to someone that in new york or alabama right so it's you know that concept of a sin is what can we do as a sort of as a as a public or at least in particularly sort of i guess western worlds where we have democracies where we vote Thing. Okay. Here, um, what can we do to basically ensure sort of I don't even know what to call it, but optimize what's <laughs> that are those sins principle, one of a better word. I don't really know how to phrase yeah, that. So uh, this is actually touches another big problem which we deal with. It's that for political reasons or for other reasons, you need to aggregate the right. preferences, yeah. And then unfortunately, if you think about this sort of democratic aggregation in the very heterogeneous society, then it's that. There is an arrows impossibility theorem showing that you cannot uh, aggregate treating everyone equally. Well, that's the thing. Well, yeah. So someone would always be unhappy. Sure. But then, uh, to some extent, uh, I would say that the U.S. showed quite some good example of the federalization there. Right. So the the whole concept, right? We have this big body of three hundred and fifty million people, and that's it. If it was an empire or something much like sort of like the British Empire was, you've governing over these putting these vast generalized little rules that maybe work in the United Kingdom, but maybe don't sort of apply to the cultural interests of maybe Australia or India or these other places. 
Whereas in America, for example, you have this big old population of 350 people, and it covers federally, but you have individual states, 50, I believe. Um, <laughs> I think. I always think 52 for some reason, but I do think it's 50. Where you are more, you can sort of at least bear, where they have more control to actually sort of set their own laws within state. And that allows you to sort of, at least to some degree, isolate sort of certain cultures and populations where those are yeah. more appropriate. And it also gives the fact that because it's uh, with sort of within one nation, if you don't like the way one state was, you could technically move to another state. Now, there's obviously stuff involved in that in um, terms of like you know there if, are if costs, you're, yeah. sure and like you know moving to one state from all that although it's probably as cheap as it has ever been it's still you know if you're less well off and like you're on the bread line or something there's intrinsics to that I think one of the big examples of that is like abortion rights and right in, in yeah. the states right because that's like oh well why don't you I think that's one of the other well if, if this state outlaws it right like well we'll just move to another state like well it's always the poor but that ends up, you know, not being able to move, and they're the people affected by it. Um, but to quite frankly, uh, in that regard, that it's always the poor people or sort of the less well off that are affected by everything because they don't have the flexibility to move. But yeah, look, the point is that if we get back to the idea of the aggregation, then in terms of political aggregation, because we have this famous result, the only thing you can do is you try to split the societies into smaller chunks. Right and let the smaller chance decide how they want to live. But then on the other hand, you have, you know, you think about US, but then look at the European Union. Mm-hmm. You have like the Poland, which prohibited abortion. <laughs> so, and that's the same, just uh, they, they face the same problem, the people there. True, but I mean, there's such cultural diversity in Europe as well, even with sort of the European Exactly, no, but with the freedom of movement, you can think about, uh, about that yeah, similar really, way, yeah? Yeah, that's true, and like now I was in Belgium sort of a couple of weeks ago, and it's you just literally cross straight to the border, like into Germany or wherever, you know, for to live wherever you like, of course, so... Um, so yeah, I think that's, uh, I guess that's an important, just being able to isolate it. I mean, other than... Are there ways of when implementing those kind of policies? Because that's very much on the geographic level of being able to sort of isolate populations and things like that. Are there are there any other ways that you can do it? In I don't even know what we would maybe in terms of that's why the industries and things like that. I'm not entirely sure. So you mean like try to isolate? You mean try to? In the, I speak out to isolate sort of peoples of in terms of least respect I suppose in terms of instead of being on the geographical maybe more of an ideas notion but obviously that's a lot more difficult right look the point is that um, yeah the, the problem is that uh, you cannot do it in other ways than like if you want to do the policy analysis yeah then yeah like for instance in this uh, real difference paper we don't care about like the geography yeah, yeah. we just look at the preference parameters and types of the response. So for the economist, uh, basically your income and your labor supply would be much more important for your preference type and response than where you, where you live, etc. Yeah. So, you know, you would find that, uh, like college educated people, uh, in, I don't know, in, uh, Germany and, uh, uh, U.S. would have much more in common than, uh, you know, highly educated people in Germany with very uneducated people in Germany. Yeah. So, 
that's what kind of mattering. Like, of course, there would be some country uh, fixed effect, some country effect, but then you would do you you do see some uh, uh, some kind of universal ideological uh, common like common grounds. Yeah. So again, dealing dealing a lot with the utility analysis at the like household level. What we see, for instance, mirroring patterns, and then the people, you know, and in general, the tendency of people to form the social groups towards their level of education, their level of income, etc., etc. So that's the, and of course, mirroring within the same group, and this is, you know, something that you can think, uh, I don't know, in uh, Eastern Europe and in California, it would be the same. And you know you would see same in Mexico, in Peru, everywhere. Mm. So that's just a general, uh, general idea. Sure. Um, something that your research as well sort of relates to issues of in terms of policy stuff, in terms of things like divorces, custody of children, domestic abuse, in terms of utility. Um, can you talk to me about how sort of the utility sort of oh yeah so sort of factors into those those situations and. Uh, yeah, look, the, the household is a majestic object. <laughs> no, because uh, if, if, if you think about if you think about the macro models, uh, we started from the fact that all these macro models they assume that the household maximizes the utility function. Yeah, and I've told that it's wrong. Yeah, and it's wrong because the household actually maximizes two utility functions at least. Yeah, two individuals because it has at least two people, and that's why I was saying like pretty much all macro models are to some extent wrong. Right, <laughs> because they can't incorporate that. But again, it works for their models yeah. because of the level of aggregation. All right, but if you want to think about, sorry, for instance, poverty analysis or that, you need to look deeper into these two people. So, kind of the big attraction to that, it was. Uh, then in Mexico, I think they introduced this conditional cash transfer for children. Okay. So it's a general idea that in developing countries or in general that you receive a subsidy for children, yep. but not if you're, of course, like if you're from a classified poor household, mm. but conditionally, for instance, a children, child goes to school at least like uh, five days a week. Yeah or exhibit some other socially desirable behavioral pattern which is the, which you as a parent can enforce okay so and then uh, what they did is what it wasn't only conditional cash transfer but it was a directed cash transfer it was a cash transfer to mothers right and cash transfers in, in terms of it's a sub, it's essentially a subsidy yeah subsidy so so now we have like sort of child benefit with exactly okay, but so. then the point is that in this, it depend. It really depends to whom you give right, this yeah, child yeah. subsidy, because what they did, they did a little study, and then it happens that if you give it to general like family account, which is usually associated with a male in the household, then it's more likely that expenditure on alcohol, etc., etc., would increase. Oh, it's funny that I remember this is sort of pulling me back into I remember doing a um, development economics module when I was at university and that was always one of the me- one of the metrics they said is actually quite important in terms of showing um, <laughs> actually how a site so guys who was actually beginning to develop and so it was actually sort of 
income of um, females, so sort of isolated specifically, exactly. because it was at least shown in the research that at least we were talking about and exhibiting that when the women of a household were had higher incomes, more of that income was actually spent on investment opportunities in terms of the children, healthcare, um, structural things, so that you know. If, you know, if healthcare is quite obviously important from a standpoint where if you're sick less, you can go to school more. If you go to school more, you get more educated, you get a higher job, you grow, develop, you've got more sort of for the economy. Exactly. If you invest in your household, it gets cleaner, which partly, you know, potentially and that affects the healthcare and all these other things. Whereas they found it was more likely if it wasn't necessarily the same link with males of the household, that it was more that more at least more likely that, like you say, more likely to be spent on alcohol or you know these yeah. ne- negative connotations really so it's funny to bring that up really and that's why you actually need to identify the shares of uh, who gets what yeah yeah so and that's why for instance uh, even the poverty rates uh, especially if you think about uh, not such a gender equal society or like a society <laughs> with a developed uh, equality norms mm-hmm. where you know think about uh, a female being basically locked at home after after a birth of a child and then we're thinking about like female exiting the labor for force after the fertility decision we're not necessarily talking about uh like you know some developing country somewhere deep uh, in you know it's quite frequently happens for instance in germany and finally, more in Western Germany than Eastern Germany. Oh, interesting. Uh, it's a Catholic uh, heritage. Uh, it happens in Japan, which is like, hell, this is a developed country. Yeah. So, and still this stuff, it's, it's, it's a common thing to happen. Yeah. And then, because the female exits the labor force, she uh, loses quite some bargaining power in the household. And it might be that household looks okay on average. But because of inequality, actually, the female and thus the children end up being poor. Yeah. And they need the subsidy. Although, if you just look at aggregate consumption, they will look okay. Right, okay, I see. But this consumption is obviously misallocated. True. I suppose that's the the part of the issue with looking at households. Like I say, it's like a one person unit, right? Whereas in reality, it's, you know, much more complicated than that. With some systematic differences. Yeah. is it as per is it as pertinent in between is there like a difference between let's say more developed economies and less developed economies in terms of if let's say in a divorce proceeding let's say the the female in the situation with the kids and stuff was more likely to get more remuneration whether that would have greater impact on the utility or not is there a variance between the developing and the more developed worlds or there is hell there's a lot of I would imagine there would be but like you know I don't know so uh, the huge difference is that basically for the female uh, to get uh, for a female to efficiently participate in household bargaining or to get uh, you know even with the even if we meet the questions about access to the labor market so whether female can work or not mm-hmm. uh, the gender pay gap which basically differ due to the female specific occupations being totally different in developing worlds yeah so but then the simple thing is that it is important to have a way to exit the marriage yeah 
Okay. It is basically the something that allows you to fix the losses in this bargaining and right. sets a particular standard. Which is counterintuitive, particularly from particular religions, when of it, where marriage is very much a sort of set in, or at least it's meant to be sort of set in stone. So you're saying it's a much better situation where there's, you're able to exit bad situations. The easier it is to exit, uh, the better is the intra-household bargaining. And uh, the more sort of fair is the distribution of the resources. Sure. In terms of household bargaining, does that just do factors that affect that, you know, just things like just having more equitable rights in terms of between, you know, for example, in, I know in particular in certain states and stuff that no people just can't work certain jobs and things, you know, of, of that nature. Is it just having sort of those instruments that allow them to have more household bargaining? So making sure that both sexes can compete in both in certain labour sectors and they have the same rights and stuff and that just allows them to have more household bargaining? Or that, what, what are the other potentially other areas that allow that? Uh, yes, that's one of the things, but then unfortunately it doesn't end with, uh, it doesn't end uh, with the institution, like with the legal sort of constraint. Because as, uh, again, working in the household, I was looking at Mexico because they recently allowed for unilateral divorce. Okay. So basically they, they simplified divorce procedures significantly. Why was that? A couple of years ago, I think in 19, so, and then you would say, okay, you gave, you just gave females a lot of power, but the problem is that the society hasn't, so the possibility right. for a female to remarry after divorce, because of cultural is, uh, reasons, it's culturally not acceptable, Yeah. so I've talked to some colleagues and friends in Mexico, and they explain that people like, you know, the traditional people and Mexico has a significant significantly conservative population they would yep. use quite unpleasant words referring sure. to divorced females so and I'm sure Mexico I'm sure Mexico is not the only place in terms of that regard yeah so. and that's sort of the problem because legally you can change things quickly which, yeah. is, which is how you do that in terms of sort of government policy yeah. and things like you that you go right? to you know you, the three hearings in the parliament uh, you're yeah. done but, but then you need to change the culture. Which is obviously a whole different matter in itself, which has you know, years upon, well, centuries upon centuries. Of exactly. Sort of embedding so, and that's why, you know, I think that a lot of, uh, a lot of debates, uh, especially when you think about equality and fairness, I think that a lot of debates on like government being slow, etc. It's sometimes, you know, it's, it's like the, most progressive five percent of the society trying to push for that and it's good yep but then you know government may, should adopt it and might adopt it but then in a lot of cases like this people so for instance i think in germany they allowed uh, the joint parenting leave quite a while ago still it's a very limited number of people who uses it right i actually use the facility so yeah yeah so and uh, at least, like, the, the anecdotal evidence I got, that it's basically the people, you know, with master's degrees and above uh, who use this opportunity. Right, so both, particularly among households where they're both sort of high, high yeah, ed- yeah, exactly. both highly educated individuals. Then they would start using it jointly, otherwise... Uh, it doesn't really manifest It doesn't itself. really manifest anything. So, and that's sort of the point, that adopting a law or changing a law is kind of 
And that relates back to the preferences. It's only the beginning of the path. Right, yeah. So you might think that, okay, you know, we did a lot of work, we pushed the agenda through the parliament, which I believe is like, I know how much analysis uh, needs to be done, for instance, for sugar taxes. Yeah. <laughs> but that's like just the beginning of the path. Sure. And it's kind of easy if you think about the classical economics. Yeah. If you think about manipulating the budget constraints, yeah? Mm -hmm. That's when we're talking about taxes. That is easy. Like, you feel. You feel it in your pocket and kind of your mind changes automatically. Yeah. But then, uh, if you think about more complex reforms, like making uh, easier way out of divorce or improving the access for the females to the uh, to the labor market or for instance reducing a thing called motherhood penalty motherhood penalty uh, female like uh, it's it's a phenomenon that uh, fe females uh, after the fertility decision after getting a child uh, because they have to stay out of the labor force for some time sure yeah they gain a constant gap so, because they were out of labor force, they didn't accumulate the human capital, etc., etc. And then the problem with this gap is not closing over time. Right. So, uh, I think it was uh, Monica Costa Diaz and uh, quite some other people from uh, IFS and UCL who did that study. And they shown that uh, that, is, uh, that is indeed a problem. That, you know, yeah, of course, like you stay out of labor force for like whatever, three months, six months, depending on the uh, maternity leave. Yeah. But then this thing, it's not like, it's not like your wage catches up to the previous trajectory. So, really? what, so just, just, what you would expect that, yeah, you know, you would work harder, you would get some sort of uh, pushing back up. So you, it, it won't, so at least the evidence suggests that the, let's say you're on sort of like a level trajectory that you're going up, just taking that sort of like three months, call it absence, you don't let, the evidence would suggest it doesn't actually get back to that sort of level. It doesn't get to the previous level, it grows parallel. Interesting. So you, you for, for the rest of your life, you would be ex experiencing the cost of this decision. Is that isolated to maternity leave? Like, so for example, if I was, because if I was to take a sabbatical from my job for three months, uh, I think that at least the evidence I was looking, they were using the maternity leave as a simple uh, variation, you know, because right. that's widespread. Well, it's more, <laughs> I guess more common. Than Not so many people just uh, get the sabbatical yeah, yeah. for unknown reason. And then also the problem is that usually if you take the sabbatical, it's hard to identify whether it's health related or, yeah. you know. You've got other factors. Yeah. That? And with maternity leave, you kind of know that it's not... Uh, no, and it's, it's, it's for a very specific reason. Exactly. Very specific reason. We know all the way it might affect your future productivity or etc. Et yeah, as opposed to, let's say, being fired from your job. Because potentially being fired you know, from your yeah. job or, for instance, I don't know, experiencing the burnout or, yeah, or uh, health issues. Big health server, you can't, yeah. can, you can't, you know, maybe you have a stroke or something, you're just not able to exactly. produce as much so, in the future. Constant. And that's why the maternity leave is an uh, is an easy is an easy way uh, to measure these things. Yeah, I imagine that varies across industries as well. Because that, I think I was reading something not too long ago. It was about how high-powered law firms are actually finding it very very difficult to retain sort of female 
you know, sort of the, the lawyers and particularly in sort of those high-powered law firms. I think I, I, there wasn't really sort of an explanation as to why as to sort of getting about they, they post some reasons and stuff but I don't know whether it's just because is it just because that when they take that time out that they're so far behind I find that almost hard to be, I find that hard to believe that just taking three six months out that it would affect uh, their ability to compute that much or I think that in law it really might push you back but also you're forgetting that it's, it's the US law firms I think so it was, okay yeah. uh, think about their work their work day long yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. uh, those are infamous lawyer hours in America. exactly well and, and the culture as well quite and frankly. this is very incompatible with the idea of maternity very I mean but in America I think the idea of sort of taking sort of extended holiday I think is even sort of look down upon well it's, it's very much sort of you know work hard reward sort of mentality yeah. right? pull yourself up by your boots just kind of mentality and you know, I think, and particularly in Europe, we get a lot more sort of uh, workers' rights in terms of having sort of statutory pay over minimum. It's usually about twenty-five days or yeah. a minimum of twenty. Whereas I think America, like the minimum they have to give you is like maybe two weeks or something. It's it's, it's a lot less, right? Yeah. And the actual laws around sort of you know making sure you're not working over your hours consistently and things like that are you know a lot more lax over there. So yeah, is man. so is that like a cultural implication? You think that's it's not. Uh, it's partially cultural implications, but I think that for the law firms, it's not like they would make you work more. Right. No, it's like look. For instance, uh, we work at the university, and then technically in Europe, you know, we are not. Uh, we should work about thirty-five hours. Yeah, like thirty-five to forty hours a week. So it's pretty standard. You do research for eight hours a week, no holidays, no nothing, because, you know, it's a, it's a publisher parish story, and uh, you enjoy it. Mm. And then, yes, it interferes with, uh, with the rest of the life, of course, but uh, that's kind of a path uh, you're choosing. In the sense, the difference in culture, it's affecting less, like, the female lawyer situation we're talking, and more, like, the jobs people are because people don't go to law because they just oh I'm gonna earn a lot of money. Well, I think that's a part, I think a part of that's it. That's part of it, but, but, but there's also have some predisposition for that. Sure, yeah. of course. There's a you know there's other you know there's other work I suppose you could do that would maybe sort of lead to more financial exactly. rewards potentially. Yeah. You know, have that other sort of particularly you know, there's a lot of re- <laughs> studying and so far it's just just to become a lawyer. To yeah, yeah. So practice, right? you know there are other ways to make a lot of money. You know? Yeah, you could go into investment banking or exactly. something, maybe, like, I don't know, but, anyway, yeah, that's interesting. But this difference, yeah, it would be more for, I don't know, if you think about uh, people working, I don't know, as a cashier in the shops, yeah. and then there's a huge difference between US and uh, even UK, yeah, mm. so, but then, uh, I'm not sure, it's, it's more the institutional kind of idea they're selling, Yeah. so if... Uh, you go, you go for Europe, the idea is uh, protection. Yeah. So we ensure you some quality, no matter how bad things are. Yeah. And in US, it's like, okay, we're the land of opportunity, but they're not saying the second, they are not telling the second half of the story. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If, you're, if you're like uh, the highest type on the market, you know, uh, you would get everything you want, uh, the biggest business, etc., etc. But if you're not that lucky, 
That's good. <laughs> yeah. That's fortunate. So, but yeah, that I think uh, there was actually speaking about preferences. There was uh, a nice research about so-called inequality efficiency trade-off. Okay. Because you can characterize a lot of these policies as efficiency in a sense of like meritocratic efficiency. It's like I need to give uh, a lot of reward for very talented or hardworking people yep. versus inequality. I need to maintain the level of inequality. Uh, Over the workers as a whole, yeah. Yeah, so, but just to explain, I think that for, for Europe, they did, and like the conservatives in Europe were uh, about inequality averse as the Democrats in the UK, in the US. Oh, okay, that's yeah. interesting. So it's like, uh, you can see that uh, kind of the political spectrum in the US is much more, uh, much more, at least was much more shifted towards the efficiency. Yeah. Towards like this, okay, we'll, uh, you know, we'll try not to let you die if you're poor, but that's as much as we can guarantee. Yeah, that's as much as we can guarantee. Yeah. So, but uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why you need to think about this preferences and utilities yeah definitely um i think just to like round off a conversation i think i've asked you like a nice little broad question of um what do you believe is the biggest issue or facet of economics that you think that the globe is sort of or even like the uk is potentially facing and what we can be do- doing to sort of address it so i think that uh, well, there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment. Yeah, but no, uh, the biggest issue which UK called on themselves is the Brexit. Yeah, but uh, for me, it's again, it's about aggregation of preferences. Because I remember uh, uh, right after the referendum, it was funny because it was like, okay, uh, the poor, lower-educated people who are about to die. Uh, elected uh, for a very long-term decision. Mm. Yeah, I think Brexit's a, yeah. I mean, so the point is that it was a very clear, if you think about, if you look at the voting, and then there is, a, in particular, what alerted us, it was a very clear age separation. I'm, I'm imagining much older generation. Are pro yeah. Brexiters and uh, younger people are Remainers. And then it happens that the people who's basically who will experience the effects of it, the yes. effects of it for 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 the slower for for less on the horizon, uh, ended up to yeah. be decisive on the issue. Yeah, I remember that being a very sort of moral issue at the time because, like as you say, you know the the portion of the population that was very very adamant that we needed to leave. Um, obviously is that older generation that like say aren't going to be around for to experience the effect of it as the younger generation (laughs) is Um, which is you know I mean throw some moral questions in there so maybe that the uh, should have had a higher weighting of vote to with younger people but obviously that's uh, Uh, actually we were also discussing uh, because part of the aggregation of preferences we're dealing with is voting I was discussing it with a colleague of mine who is much more of a political scientist than I am. And he explained that actually the age-based weighting of the votes wouldn't be discriminated. Interesting. So, because, uh, for instance, like, basically income, whatever, it is a discrimination, but age, it's like we all will pass. 
for the same age and yeah. the intervals of the voting are constant. Oh, so so you, the, the as that younger population gets older, they will act their preferences. They, 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 their preferences will be weighted lower in the future. Mm-hmm. So it would be like it would be limited. There would be a limited discrimination at, uh, at the time they're tossing on the law, yeah. Yeah. But uh, if you think about that as a law in place, like assume you had no elections and then you introduced the weighted elections. Oh, okay. Then uh, it doesn't have to be a discriminatory law. Okay. So because uh, you you know you all uh, like with accent the same probability of surviving uh, yeah gonna pass through all the weights yeah well the things with Brexit as well I think we've had su- there was such a cluster of things I mean it was always going to be difficult coming out of the European Union in terms of making the economy sort of but more beneficial <laughs> um, but, and obviously having sort of COVID come along having uh, Brexit initiate having a what you know a current war uh, war in Ukraine as yeah. well with you know it's inflating price basically there, there couldn't I don't think there could have potentially been more factors at play to sort of make it the least effective strategy but part some of those you couldn't have necessarily predicted but yeah, I suppose <laughs> only Brexit I think you could have predicted well I know I think that my, my perspective on it was like I wanted to stay in but I think that was I was looking very much from an economic perspective and at the end of the day I didn't want to isolate my, um, my uh, uh, the United Kingdom away from you know the body which has about 54% of its global trade with of which freely um, but you know I think for a lot of other people it was actually for more it wasn't necessarily an economic decision it was a cultural decision and it was look I think that uh, yeah for a lot of people it was like uh, in some sense now looking back uh, as uh, me growing up in Russia I realized that Brexit and a war in Ukraine they have a similar moral resentment mm. it's the imperial moral resentment then, you know, some people who voted for Brexit, they were thinking about the glorious British Commonwealth and how the grass was greener. Yeah, well, yeah, I think... Uh, so, you know, uh, to some extent it sucks, but you got off easy. <laughs> well, there, is no, there is no war with France. No, no, there is not. <laughs> well, um, thank you very much for your time. I do appreciate you taking the time out. And, thank you. Um, yeah, is there anything, do you have any research coming out or anything that people can go look at? So actually we're, uh, we finished uh, now some stuff about these fundamental welfare issues and how to do the welfare analysis for the limited attention model. So we're trying to be kind of quite innovative there. But that's, uh, that's a very intense paper in a sense that it does require uh, it does require a lot of mathematics, but the idea is that we do have a lot of like you cannot reject the idea of limited attention then decisions. Yeah, you don't study every option before choosing. But the models we have, uh, they are usually they're either very very specified and they do not match the reality well. So they basically, they cannot really, they're very good at predicting, very poor at describing. Okay. Or the models which are excellent at describing, but their prediction is almost um, like everything. So they predict almost everything can happen. So what we try to do there is that 
we assume that you have limited attention and you're not uh, taking a blind choice. So the previous models, they allowed you to do the blind choice, meaning you only look at the alternative you're going to buy, yeah. which is a very like strange type of purchasing behavior. What we try to impose is that, okay, you at least look at one alternative and second and compare. Okay, yeah. And it happens that just that simple teeny tiny assumption gives you a hell lot of identity, like forecasting power. Okay. So we managed to show that, look, now we can actually use this super general model, which like in some, basically that the people who are consistent with this model is over 99% of the sample we use, which is like, again, about thousand subjects. Yeah. And then for them, we can do a informative, well, so not perfect, but informative enough welfare analysis. Okay. So, but that's that's the most recent thing. Cool, but I'll, uh, I'm sure everyone, will, well, like I say, in terms of the maths of it, they may not be able to sort of delve in as far as trying, but I think sort of the, the research and the stuff and the actual content stuff is very interesting, so I'm going to enjoy it. But uh, yeah, thank you very much for thank enjoying you. it. I do appreciate it. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Babble podcast. If you did enjoy, please give us a like and comment down below of any future topics you would like to see discussed. But until then, see you soon.